medical department only to go to the bench and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance podcast. I'm El Trezize, a medical student in London, and your host for today's episode. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Laura Bowen. Laura is the lead sports scientist for Southampton FC Women and Girls, and in the past worked as a sports scientist with Southampton's men's first team. She also works as a consultant at FIFA. She has done a PhD on workloads and injury risk in Premier League football, and has a bachelor's degree in sports and exercise sciences both of these from the University of Birmingham. Thank you for joining us today, Laura. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Thank you for asking. Good to have you on board. So today we're going to discuss the work you do as a sports scientist in elite football, uh, as well as your experience being a woman working in this industry. So first question, tell us a bit about your career to date. What got you interested in sports science and what drew you to working in elite football? Okay, so I guess for a start, I played football um, from when I was a little kid. I grew up in an estate with boys, so we just go out and play on the fields all afternoon, and that's how I got into football. And then I think probably when I got a little bit older, I realised I was never going to be a player. I'm not very good at playing, and I think you'll find most people that end up being a sports scientist is usually because they're not good enough to play, or they've played and they've retired. And I did so as part of my dissertation at uni we got the opportunity to work within a football club and that's really where I jumped at the opportunity I got into sports science because I loved sport and it's what brought made me confident and then got the opportunity to work in a football club so I went to Villa and and then I did my dissertation there and they offered me a job at the end of it because they needed a nerd to sit at a computer and crunch all the GPS numbers which was brand new at the time and that suited me perfectly. And I started as a foot in the door. Um, then I moved over to Southampton to almost the same job in their academy there. And have been at Saints ever since, working with the academy, first as a GPS analyst, then as a sports scientist, moving into the first team. Um, again, started out sort of crunching the numbers and then being a bit more hands-on, getting involved in rehabs and conditioning sessions. And then about a year ago, I moved over to the women's team, which is the first time I've led a squad as the lead sports scientist, which is really nice to see. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's really interesting. So what does your sport, um, sorry, what does your typical day as a sports scientist look like? Um, uh, at the moment or in the past? Uh, good to make the distinction, yeah. Um, I suppose actually it'd be interesting to see how it does compare. So when you were working with the men's first team, Actually, as, as we were discussing for him record, you know, very, very packed schedule with the women's team. The schedule is not as packed at the moment because you're saying uh, in tier three, not yet full time. Um, so, yeah, maybe give us some insight into how it actually differs between the two. OK, uh, so with the men's team, it was in, you know, most days you'd have a meeting first thing in the morning with all the backroom staff. So 
whether that be the doctors, the physios, soft issues, sports science, strength and conditioning, and everyone would plan out, map out the day and where you can all support each other best in a player-centered approach. And then from there, it would be um, potentially taking uh, rehab sessions in the morning or at least, you know, setting things up, getting things ready for the squad and then going out, monitoring the training sessions for the, for the ones that are in the squad or being out and taking a rehab session. Um, crunching all those numbers, making reports in the afternoon and then being in the gym, being around the team again, supporting in there. Um, and then at the end of the day, you'd sort of bring it all together and plan for the next day. Quite fast paced and very reactive. Um, but really a lot of planning, um, a lot of reacting to numbers and modifying things for the next day um, in terms of my role anyway. And then now with the women's team, we train at night. so. Um, I've been practicing trying to turn my mornings into evenings and chill out. And then uh, from about 12 o'clock, I'd go in. Again, sort of similar, we have a meeting um, amongst the staff, but there's less of us. Um, so it's quite nice because within that meeting is the coaching team as well, which was different from the men's team, where the backroom staff and the coaching team are a bit more separate. Now it's all together and we plan training um, as a group collectively. Um, and then from that point on, it's making reports from the previous day, planning gym programs, um, and actually a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to come under a sports science umbrella. So making sure food is uh, ordered for the weekend or making sure, um, oh God, I don't know, there's so many things, making sure someone's got the right size kit. Or, you know, it's a lot of running around and doing jobs that, that fit sort of in the ad hoc duties. And then when the girls come in, um, especially because they they have jobs as well, they come in at different times. So being around different gym slots and different rehab slots, fitting around their other schedules. Um, being around the training session again, taking warm-ups, taking conditioning sessions, advising the coach on, you know, do we do one more small-sided game? Do we come out? Um, and then more gym sessions after training. And then obviously being around a match day, supporting, taking warm-ups, things like that. That's my day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so I think that leads quite nicely into the next question, which is, I imagine it's one thing to record the data and to analyze it, but quite another to communicate it to coaching staff, other support staff, um, players as well. And, um, along with all of this to get buy-in. So in your experience, what's the best way to communicate the important metrics to players and other staff and what helps to get buy-in? Uh, so I, I thought about this question because I, I think it's something that took probably took me longer than it it should have to learn, which is the best way to get buy-in and to get that information across is to ask them what they want, what do they want to know, like what answers do they want from that data. And for most uh, coaches, it's did we hit what we want to hit? Are we preparing them for games? Um, and then whatever metrics they're comfortable in answering that question. So hopefully by now I have a reasonable experience of uh, what the numbers actually mean. They don't need to know what they mean. It's more around the conversation of today was extensive. Tomorrow we could maybe go a little bit more intensive, make the pit sizes smaller. And I think it's that conversation is really important. And then with the players, again, I, I think it's very important to have a conversation. So usually they want to know like, 
who's ran the most, who's ran the fastest, who's done the most accelerations, or whatever it is you're looking at. And I, I think it's about giving them context behind that. Running the most doesn't mean that you've performed the best. Running the fastest doesn't mean you perform the best. You might be sprinting max out because you're out of position. Um, so it's about having the conversation around the context. Um, and then hopefully building those relationships over time helps build buy-in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you mind expanding a bit on that, actually, the way that you have found you can uh, you know, build those relationships to, to get that buy-in and et cetera? I think it's different for everybody. Like, um, for example, Marianne, who's the head coach of the women's team now, she'd much rather have a conversation that doesn't involve a report. Um, because so, but learning that over time, you know, ha- getting into a position where you're providing answers, where you're open, and you sort of leave your ego at the door a little bit and do whatever's best for the players and show that that's what you're in it for. Um, I've worked with other coaches who are very interested in seeing the numbers, but they don't always understand what they mean. They just like to see the numbers and then hopefully over time you can make make little, you know, little inroads into showing that you're interested in just getting the best out of the players, whatever they want, and understanding how they want to play. I think it's important. Mm. Um, I always try and understand what the coach wants out of the team rather than just being like, I'm a sports scientist, I don't need to know the tactics or using the same terminology, um, understanding the way they want to play, understanding where they see the players fit within within the group, understanding that player and, you know, if they've just been dropped from the squad and then you tell them they've run the least in the training session, it's understanding them as people. I think that's what helps. Yeah, yeah, I know that, that makes a lot of sense. So in your opinion, at elite level, What's the most effective way sports scientists and medics, uh, physios, doctors, et cetera, can work together to optimise the physical performance of players and reduce their injury risk? Um, So I guess in a similar way, good communication and removing your own ego, um, building trust as a team, understanding that everybody is there to get the best out of the players. So if I suggest doing something or if you suggest doing something and they're against each other, they're against each other, but only because you're doing what you think is best and I'm doing what I think is best. And how can we reach a compromise or how can we at least understand where the other person is coming from? I think always having the players in the center and not, I don't know, I want to do this testing because it makes me look good or Mm. more, what do the players actually need in this moment? Um, I think the most uh, success that I've ever seen is a team that actually works together and has each other's backs because there's lots of different ways of approaching things. I think you're lying if you say there's one answer, but it's at least just understanding that everyone is going for the same thing and where the benefits lie. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you're really saying, um, you know, to keep it player-centred and just to remember you've all essentially got the same same goal which is you know to support the players and and the performance essentially of that team yeah so moving on now to your experience being a woman uh, working the men's professional game what was that like and I I asked because I imagine it was or it is a different experience working with the women and girls program which you transferred across to just over a year ago Um, and this was after previously working with the men's first team at Southampton for a number of years yeah uh what was it like um challenging is probably 
the best word that I can use it, not necessarily in a bad way. You know, it's a professional environment. Um, there's very high standards. It's very fast paced. There's a lot of experts, so you learn a lot. Um, also challenging because I think, in my opinion, I think as a, as a female in that environment, you have to prove yourself a lot, a lot more than maybe a, a man would. Um, because it's so male dominated, you instantly look out of place, you know. If you're one or two of the only females in the room and someone you walks in, it's a bit of a shock, especially if they've been at other clubs where there's perhaps not females and you have to prove yourself over and over, I think. Mm. Um, I learned a lot. You know, the men's game is ahead of the women's game. It's been going for longer. There's a lot of experts in the field. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of experience. And mm. so I got the opportunity to work with some incredible practitioners, some staff, some incredible athletes. Um, I think being a, a woman in a male-dominated environment, especially in football, it's come a long way. There's still a long way to go. I think that's probably the fairest way I can put it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then keeping that in mind really so what advice would you have for women aspiring to have a successful career in elite football uh, or in fact anyone looking really to achieve similar things to yourself uh, regardless of gender I, I would say be passionate about it show who you are as a person and and don't lose that stay true to your values um, I would like to think that the Environment is changing, um, but the be the biggest changes that are made is when there is a shift in mindset. It is not mm -hmm. about anybody, male or female, belonging or not belonging in that environment. It's about the mindset of everyone that is professionals within a professional environment. So be yourself, stay true to your values and be passionate because there's a lot of people who want these jobs, but it's a lot of time. Um, and a lot of commitment you have to really love it and you have to keep showing it yeah yeah that's great and my last question is uh, you know some say there is a bias in football that is a barrier to women getting certain positions in fact a previous guest of ours um, who came on the pod Rachel Davis who is head of physiotherapy at Harrogate Town FC said this in her episode with us um, so do you agree with this and if so do you have any views about how this could be addressed um, you know what, I do agree with it. And I think probably one of the best ways to address it is to be open and upfront about it. Uh, it's not just in football. Um, lots of industries will talk about how women don't apply to roles or they have a lot less females applying to roles than males. Um, and then you can see from the environment that in, in football, it is very male dominated still. So you can't say there's not that issue there. Um, I think, again, like it's about changing that mindset. You know, the old school mindset might be that women in football are a distraction, but it's actually about professionals being professionals um, and treating each other that way. Mm. I think, you know, everybody deserves respect and value for whoever they are. And I think you know most companies are striving for that now and it, and it is getting there you're only narrowing your talent pool otherwise right 
Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, for giving up your time. I found that really interesting, insightful. I'm sure listeners have too. Thank you very much. Listeners. For me. Oh, no. Thank you. <laughs> listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the FMPA podcast on Spotify or SoundCloud. Alternatively, please check out the podcast section of the FMPA website. Thank you for listening to the Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. Have a great day. Bye.